Hey folks, just a quick note before we get started on this episode of The Warrior Poet. Frequent listeners will notice that I don't usually give an elaborate intro, table of contents. I find that to be excessive and often unnecessary. If you're here for the first time, welcome. If you are a routine listener, you know that this is seldom a show where I'm giving you actionable tips that you can implement tomorrow or today. That's what most other shows out there are designed to do. That's their business model is to give you a listicle of things in an episode or to do interviews with people that will grow their audience. And that's their primary objective. That's not mine. Maybe to the detriment of this podcast, I generally approach it with the aim of talking about things that I've been thinking about and that spur me to new insights and that I hope will do the same for you. So I appreciate you allowing me to depart from that model today. I just want to invite folks to connect with me on Instagram at Shri the Warrior Poet. That's S-R-I, the Warrior Poet. And on a personal level, if you care to see what I'm up to day to day outside of the podcast, I'm at Shri Actually. And the reason I invite all of you to connect with me there is because I'd love to understand what you're dealing with in the workplace and extend this special invitation to you to let me know how I can help in your day-to-day life, the startup you're trying to launch, or how you're navigating the corporate bureaucracy the best you can. So hope to see you there. Enjoy the episode. Quarantine is a great time to catch up on your reading. A lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are doing puzzles. Apparently, the resale market on puzzles is just bonkers. So if you were one of those people who was just stockpiling puzzles as a call option on that market, you are probably raking in a ton of money right now. Congratulations for the rest of the population. They are puzzle-starved. Apparently, many others are looking to catch up on their reading. Before quarantine, I had borrowed a book from the library by David Foster Wallace, who I'd been meaning to catch up on more of out of an obligation than anything else. He was in that movie, End of the Tour, with the guy from the Facebook movie, The Social Network. I can't remember what that actor's name is. Sorry, dude. But uh, I mean, I suppose he's like an A- minus actor, so I should, I should know his name. Anyway, David Foster Wallace was featured in that movie towards the end of, I I think, the tour for his book, Infinite Jest, at the height of his fame. Now, David Foster Wallace is one of those characters in literature, in writing, where readers feel an obligation to read him, and that's, that's what I felt. He's known for having lots of footnotes and being a genius. And so instead of picking up one of his smaller works and easier works, of course, I decided in sort of seal fashion to, uh, or maybe just my own fashion, to take on the biggest challenge of his, which is infinite jests, kind of his magnum opus. And I figured out about 
couple hundred pages in that the jest is that someone would actually read this book. Now, in all seriousness, I actually struggled through and uh, sometimes, like you, when I feel a certain way about a movie or a book, I Google the exact way I feel to try and just get some confirmation bias that I'm not alone and to rationalize my own views of things. Thank God I don't do that about politics anymore for several years now. I did that last night for Blade Runner. I finally saw Blade Runner, which came out, I think, in 1982. Harrison Ford, Ridley Scott directing. Sean Young is in that. She was in a ton of movies back in the day as a lead actress. You don't see her very much anymore. Always, I think, played sort of weird characters. She was in a helicopter movie, I think, actually. Uh, yeah, with, with Nicolas Cage. That's right. I'm not necessarily endorsing that film, so don't go out and watch that right away. I have an obligation to keep up with, with me by any means. Anyway, what I Googled this morning was, is Blade Runner overrated? I watched it with my teenage daughter, and I got to say, I saw the, the final cut. There are like 13 versions of the original for some reason, and uh, after Googling around and, and doing five minutes, 10 minutes of research to figure out which of these versions I should watch. I watched the final cut for any of you Blade Runner nerds out there. The movie's pretty meh, to be honest. It's, it's really not that great. It's interesting cinematically for the time. There were lots of great special effects and cinematography and some really interesting themes in there. But uh, to anyone who ask me at this point if there's anyone else out there who hasn't seen the original uh, who's, who's around my age. I'm just going to recommend they read the book by, I think, Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And I've heard it's really good. I'm guessing that you get the themes and the interesting science and the interesting moral conundrums about what makes someone human and things like that uh, more from that book than anything else that you would get from from Blade Runner itself. Also, I got to acknowledge that it might be the case that a lot of those AI themes are really probably played out through the perhaps hundreds of movies and books and comics and other things that came out after Blade Runner and probably hammered that home a lot more uh, than, than anything else. So I will be sure to put a link to that book in the show notes. David Foster Wallace's book, Infinite Jest, features a main character named Hal Incandenza. I don't think it's a coincidence that the last name might have some metaphorical meaning. Kind of like all the spells and names in Harry Potter, for instance. The book, which is, I don't know, 1,000, 1,200 pages of small font and footnotes. Some pages just go on and on and on about details that are not important and extremely boring and merely serve to be mental masturbation for the author or to attempt to show people just how smart he is. 
there are lots of David Foster Wallace fanboys and fangirls who give him what he wants, kind of like a serial killer writing a note to the newspaper to try and get famous. Uh, not quite that bad what his fanboys have done for him. He's since passed, by the way. But the book uh, goes into those sorts of details that are not that amusing to the reader often. Hopefully, I'm not guilty of similar sins on this podcast. The book is ostensibly, granted, I didn't make it through it. I returned it before quarantine. And so I wish I had not returned it before quarantine so I could actually hold on to it. But I was out of renewals. Again, the book is 1,200 pages and a slog to get through. Now would be the perfect time to have held on to that while the library is closed. The book is ostensibly about this character and his drug addiction problem and other problems while he is at the Enfield Tennis Academy, I think. I have no idea if that's a real place, but some sort of tennis academy in and around Boston. He, at some point, his family comes across, or maybe his father had pre-humously, whatever the opposite of posthumously is, before he died, invented, created a video that apparently is so entertaining and so powerful that it puts everyone in a stupor. The point here is that Hal, the main character, is sort of a bad boy. For some reason, we've talked about tennis on this podcast before. I do love the sport. Uh, I probably talk about it excessively. It's not the only sport that I like. I should admit that it is pretty preposterous how the media like to talk about the bad boys of tennis over time. It may be due to the fact that they're trying to add some color and get some ratings for a sport that, as John McEnroe, one of the most famous bad boys and a very successful tennis player himself, once said, tennis is considered by some to be a sissy sport. So maybe, maybe calling Andre Agassi or any other people bad boys of tennis is an effort to try and rectify that. Bad boys, what you want, what you gonna do? When Sheriff John Brown come for you. Of course, we as humans are drawn to the spectacle of the bad boys, and I should add, bad girls. I suppose Hope Solo, the goalkeeper uh, for the U.S. women's soccer team, is a, is a bad girl, I suppose. We're drawn to these people, despite the quote from Charles Barkley, I am not a role model. Often these bad boys, bad girls, do actually serve as role models for kids and adults alike. The question is, what is it about them that draws us to them? Are there tendencies that are coincident with other behaviors that we want to see in the workplace or that we want to see in ourselves or that are just lying within our own natures and characters? Sometimes dormant. Maybe you've got a relatively sleepy career Maybe you want to 
awaken the giant within, as Tony Robbins would say. Or maybe you are middling in your career. Maybe you're not succeeding in the business that you run precisely because you can't contain that bad boy within, that person who throws a tantrum every now and then. I've thrown a tantrum or two in my work. There was the time that I quit all of a sudden on a project to recover Libyan assets, the billions that Muammar Gaddafi stole. There was a time in the teams where I, I don't want to say I threw a tantrum necessarily, but had a, an argument, fairly animated argument in front of a large number of people in an operations center. Maybe I'll talk more about that another time. The gentleman in question ended up committing suicide later on in life. And uh, I'm, I don't mean to make light of that at all. May he rest in peace. Hope his family is doing okay. Uh, to be clear, he didn't commit suicide based on the argument that I had with him. Of course, like some of the athletes we mentioned, SEALs tend to have a reputation for being cowboys in the last 10, 20 years. SEALs have an increasing reputation for wanting attention, but that cowboy reputation has been the most enduring and probably most consistent aspect, often to the team's detriment and leadership of Naval Special Warfare, which is the official name for overall SEALs within the Navy. SOCOM and Naval Special Warfare have done a lot to decrease that reputation, that tendency towards cowboyness. And that means going outside the lines of regulation and what is prudent. That being said, the teams and other elite organizations tend to attract that cowboy personality. I heard from my dad. He had a patient of his who had served in Vietnam. And I remember the story was that in Vietnam on whatever forward operating base they were on, the SEALs could be seen free climbing the radio towers. Vietnam is where the SEAL teams cut our collective teeth. The stories and accomplishments of SEALs during that era are both legendary and heroic, to say the least. I'll be honest. There are numerous aspects of the SEAL teams in terms of that cowboyness that attracted me and no doubt attracted many of my brothers, if not all of them. The haircuts that are at times slightly out of regs or at least pushing that facial hair being authorized at times, getting sort of special authorizations in terms of the way you can operate. And most of all, that ultimate focus on what's important, on the mission, 
even if the administrivia fall away. My question is, to what extent can you build an elite team without such colorful characters and without that willingness of at least some portion of your team being people who really want to push the boundaries. It's hard to imagine many corporate teams that have these sorts of folks embedded in them. You don't see that very often in middle management. And maybe that's because they rock the boat too much and they don't do well there. I wonder, do some of these elite activities that we've alluded to, professional sports, Music, which we didn't talk about. You've got the icon of the rock star, Pete Townsend, breaking his guitar on stage. Jimi Hendrix setting his guitar on fire on stage. The arts, there's plenty of painters and photographers and other folks in the arts, visual arts, and others who were notoriously bad in that bad boy sense. Do these folks gravitate to things that serve some egocentric need of theirs? Are they just looking for affirmation and they want to find it there in these things that are high visibility, high return? Or is it actually the opposite? Is it that in order to achieve those sorts of results, one has to have some of these extreme characteristics, an irreverence, a passion, something that needs to be achieved. I'm not clear. I do know that that passion and that irreverence, they don't work in every field, of course. So the question is how you find a match between these characteristics of maybe a person on your team who is that sort of bad boy, that colorful character, or how you achieve that in your own life. I wish I had more bad girl examples besides Hope Solo. I hope that someone here will reach out on Instagram and... Let me know what these other glaring examples are that I'm overlooking. I guess there's, there's ones clearly in rock. I guess Courtney Love would be a bad girl, uh, although we haven't heard from her in a while. I would highly recommend a few songs from Courtney Love's band Hole. Of course, Courtney Love was Kurt Cobain's partner, maybe wife, I believe wife. Uh, before he died up until his suicide. The song Malibu, by the way, is my personal favorite. Although most people would go with Celebrity Skin. Maybe that's the album, the one where she talks about putting on her makeup, I think. Part of me wonders though, is it just because I'm a guy that I can't come up with so many examples? Or is it that a lot of these bad boy 
professions and activities have been shut off to women historically, and that it's only a matter of time before we have lots more bad girls. Or maybe the bad girls get criticized so negatively that it hampers their career and hampers their success. And there's maybe a double standard where we glorify the Dennis Rodmans of the world. I remember in Allen Iverson's rookie year, I think, maybe his second year, there was a whole lot of controversy about that guy. And granted, I think that fans were probably at least 50% in agreement that some of his actions were not really professional in that rookie year. That being said, I don't think there was such a backlash as to oppose him as a person or him as an athlete. And maybe that's the case for those women bad girls out there. Part of me wonders as well, though, is a lot of it just pure testosterone? Is it in our genes? Is it in our hormones? And that just guys are much more likely to be those bad boys. I'd be curious if we could do a study of testosterone in males and that tendency to push the envelope, be irreverent, go outside the lines, if that is directly correlated with one's male hormone levels. There is a consistent theme here on this episode of athletes and of things that are more expressive physically. Even music is expressive physically. The SEAL teams are intensely physical. And so I wonder if that's a key part of it as well. Then again, there are some bad boys in the business world, in the tech world. Steve Jobs comes to mind. How would you know if Steve Jobs is being effective for your organization while he's in the middle? You don't, you don't often hear of these bad boys in the middle of an organization. Usually they're probably confined to sales, not anything else really, because in sales, all that matters is revenue. All that matters is deals. All that matters is progress, whereas things are much murkier and less clear and less mission-focused in almost everything except that, unless you're in some sort of real, truly life-saving organization. Isaiah's calmed a bit. Well, when you choke the assistant coach, I guess that helps get some of the anxiety. Some of you out there will remember the basketball player David Robinson. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. I found out recently he was born in Key West, Florida. Shout out to Florida as a state. Florida does some dumb stuff at times, but it is my home state. David Robinson went to my alma mater, the Naval Academy, and his nickname was the Admiral because he went to the Naval Academy. The guy was 6'8 when he started at the Naval Academy. And obviously that's at 18, Naval Academy is a college. He got there probably at around 18. I think I was, I don't know, 
5'8", so 5'9", maybe. The guy was a whole foot taller than me when I entered. And guys obviously grow until they're 21 or so on average. And I think his listed height or something in the NBA was seven foot one. His accomplishments are crazy. He hasn't been playing for a long time. 2003 was his last year. The guy was a two-time NBA champion. Most valuable player in the NBA in 1985. A 10-time NBA All-Star. 10 times. He was four-time All-NBA first team. He was NBA Defensive Player of the Year in 1992. Made a whole bunch of other defensive honorific teams there. NBA Sportsmanship Award in 2001. Scoring Champion 1984. Rebounding Leader 1981. Blocks Leader 1992. Rookie of the Year in 1990. NBA's 50th anniversary all-time team. Had his number naturally retired by the San Antonio Spurs. His accomplishments are crazy and as an interesting counter to our bad boys topic today, the guy was widely regarded as an extreme class act, extremely professional. David Robinson did an interview recently that I'll link in the show notes, which I don't think the words do it justice. The guy is, is actually quite charismatic and very friendly. I think sometimes when people picture someone professional, they picture someone cold and boring and analytical. So the opposite of a bad boy is not necessarily a boring person. And food for thought, maybe we should consider being elite to be possible without such antics. Sometimes on The Warrior Poet, we don't give fully formed thoughts. They might be shadows on the cave wall, so to speak, in terms of Shree's impressionist thinking. And yes, after a couple glasses of wine, Shree does speak in the third person, though not often. In the interview, David Robinson says some interesting things about the 1992 Olympic quote-unquote, dream team. Up until that time, for those who weren't of Olympic viewing age, only amateurs competed in the Olympics, especially in sports like basketball. What had happened for a long time, though, is that other countries were, were really fielding professional teams. And the U.S. wasn't winning, even though the U.S. was the home of basketball, I believe. Basketball was invented by a PE teacher, if I recall correctly in the United States and the U S would, I think consistently lose. I'm looking at the screenshot, the thumbnail of David Robinson in this interview. And, uh, he looks possessed at, at one point, although he's smiling. Uh, so, so definitely check that out. His quote is about Isaiah Thomas. One of the, up until that point, sort of marquee bad boys of the NBA. David Robinson says the following about Isaiah Thomas being snubbed 
from the dream team. I think if I recall at that time, it really was a snub. It was a notable absence from the team because Isaiah Thomas was one of the best and most sort of electric basketball players of the time. And if anything, I believe Isaiah Thomas was, he wasn't in the early part of his career necessarily, but in a sense, he might've earned that spot in terms of leadership and legacy. But David Robinson says the following, if you have a reputation and you take pride in your reputation as a bad boy, it kind of means people aren't going to like you. Can you be that surprised when people say, I don't really want to play with the bad boys. And to be clear with the dream team, chemistry mattered. Dave Robinson makes that point in the interview. If you're putting together a team, chemistry matters. And sometimes maybe that bad boy can be someone that everyone likes and rallies around because they're on their team. But sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Final note. I want to be clear there's a difference between being a bad boy where you play dirty and you are poison amongst your teammates and maybe you're straight up out to hurt people. Like maybe Bill Romanowski of the National Football League or the 80s Raiders, like Lyle Alzado, I think is widely regarded as a roid rage, sort of terror on the field and not in good ways. There's a difference between that and perhaps some other aspects of this bad boyness. For instance, in the teams, lots of colorful personalities but everyone had the mission at heart. There was never any debate on that. Meanwhile, I wonder, there are portraits of leadership that focus on sort of those colorful aspects like courage, like breaking from the mold. I wonder how much of that is completely integral to leadership. I think a lot of it is. Maybe not the bad boyness. Maybe I'm just self-serving if I try and highlight too much of that bad boyness as integral to leadership. If we think about some national heroes or great inventors, great artists, there's plenty of examples of people who weren't those bad boys or bad girls. They're maybe just the ones who are most entertaining to us. Was Martin Luther King Jr. a bad boy per se? Probably not. He exhibited courage. And yes, courage and the ability to communicate are extremely important as a leader. But Malcolm X is probably more widely regarded as the person who was more of a bad boy in a sense. Not necessarily bad boy in terms of lots of drugs and alcohol, but in terms of his irreverence and pushing the envelope. At the end of the day, who was more effective? And now's that time of the show where we get all the way wet when you hit the surf in buds, you 
definitely get wet. Oftentimes you get wet and sandy. Full benefit there when you hit the surf. Often instructors will make sure you get all the way wet. Footnote number one, and not being David Foster Wallace, esoteric here, Bad Boys the Movie. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Martin Lawrence and Will Smith and their performance in at least two movies. Maybe there's three. Hopefully I didn't miss a third one. They're extremely entertaining. You got to see them. I uh, thought about including some quotes here, trying to respect other people's intellectual property as much as I can. I don't have too much to say about the movie critically or to add to it. Hence, I will leave it at this. If you haven't seen it, see those movies. I may even watch them again. They definitely do hold up and they are extremely entertaining. One of the standout performances in those movies is their boss. I I think he's a lieutenant, maybe. My rank knowledge in the police force is just based purely off of law and order and police movies and police shows. I think he's a lieutenant. Played by Joey Pants. Joey Pantoliano, I think is how you pronounce it. Man, if you look at that guy on IMDb, it is crazy. Not just the number of things he's been in, but the quality of things he's been in. I forgot that he was in Memento. Another great movie. He was in NYPD Blue. Great show. Although I, I wasn't one of my tops, but really successful show and, and really good. He was in La Bamba. He was in The Goonies. Just so many things he's been in. Dating back all the way to Risky Business and before, in particular, one of his highlights and the way lots of people got to know him was in The Sopranos. He played an awesome character in The Sopranos and just really gave all the Joey pants he could give in that performance. Side note, he's known as a character actor. And uh, it's kind of a, a weird definition of an actor because a lot of his characters really are very different. He's not that Denzel Washington playing Denzel Washington in every movie. He's not Jim Carrey playing Jim Carrey in every movie or as has come up often in this program, Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage in every program. Joey Pants uh, tends to play some pretty diverse people, but I guess they're all just so animated and they've got his voice, his sort of, New Jersey, New York City accented voice. I can't pinpoint it exactly. I'm usually pretty good on this. And, and maybe that just puts him in that character actor category. Um, maybe the biggest thing is that he is entirely notable. You never miss his performance in something, but he is seldom the lead. Oh, what did I say? Did you hear what I said? I heard what I said because I was standing there when I said it. I told you, I told you to secure a witness, not to shoot up a neighborhood, not to do it. Finally, at least on this footnote, as I was researching the show, I, <laughs> I always make this mistake. Not that I Google Martin Lawrence and Martin Short all the time, but I was trying to refresh my memory on which actor was in <laughs> Bad Boys. <laughs> and, uh, For those of you who know, can you imagine Bad Boys with Martin Short 
That would be amazing. I think Will Smith and Martin Short should definitely do some parody clips of, of bad boys if they haven't done it already. It's such a genius idea. I guarantee, so, I guarantee they've probably done it on YouTube. Uh, uh, so if anyone spots that, <laughs> shoot me a note on Instagram and we can all share in the joy that would be Martin Short. So no, it's Martin Lawrence in Bad Boys. And I haven't seen that guy in a long time. Martin, Will Smith has been around. I, I haven't seen Martin Lawrence in a little while, but Martin Short is one of the funniest men alive. He keeps saying he's going to die soon, as well as Steve Martin sharing that name. Steve Martin, also one of the funniest people. Although I seem to recollect that you should definitely not see LA Story. If I'm, if I'm getting that movie right. At the time, it was one of the worst movies I had ever seen. Then again, I was probably 20, 21, and maybe I just wasn't ready for it. It could have been Curb Your Enthusiasm humor before everyone was warmed up to that kind of sensibility. What did you have to act so mean? Don't you know you're a human being? Born of a mother with the love of a father Reflections come and reflections go I know sometimes you wanna let go I know sometimes you wanna let go Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? You're too bad You're too rude that, that was an epic cover of the Bad Boys song from the show Cops, which is where it became the most famous. It's originally a song by the band, the group, whatever they are, duo, inner circle. The song is also featured in the movie Bad Boys. That cover is on YouTube, courtesy of Derek Mock. You should definitely go there and like his video and respect him putting himself out there and giving us all an amazing rendition of that song. Finally, footnote number three. There's a sport called snooker. Yes, snooker. At some point in the 1980s and maybe early 90s, snooker had been ascending in the popular consciousness. It's unclear how. It's like as if cricket were to somehow be on TV now and Americans would watch it. Probably never going to happen. But Snooker at some point got into TV at least around 10 p.m., 11 p.m. Because my dad would be watching sometimes at night and I would watch this absurd sport. I still have no idea how it works. My dad's Indian. I will never understand how cricket works. I, I know some of the words, a wicked googly, just pretty epic term for anything. If you're going to invent a new sport, just call something a wicked googly. Go ahead. I'm in. But snooker is also absurdly complicated to me. And I think is the kind of thing that was popular when people had nothing to do for like three or four days at a time. And so they, <laughs> they would just invent these insane games where people would just bring like three days worth of food and sit on a hill and watch people do stuff. Reminds me of the Parks and Rec episode, Cones of Dunsher, 
where the main characters, boyfriend, fiance, love interest, eventual husband on the show has some time off. I think he gets laid off. There's a government shutdown and he reinvests his time in this idea he always had (laughs) called uh, a game called the cones of Duncher. And it's just absurd how complicated the rules are. That's how Snooker seems to me. In some lists of the most famous bad boys of sports, you will find a gentleman named Alex Higgins. He was from Northern Ireland. He was a snooker player. At one point, he was known as the people's champion because of his popularity, according to Wikipedia. His nickname was Hurricane Higgins. He would play extremely fast. He did extremely well and was a prodigy from a very young age. I think there's a a picture of him as a teenager with some professionals because he was so good. Apparently he could see the table and see what the best shot was in any angle better than anyone. But ultimately he was not the most successful player ever. And he died a quite ignominious death. At one point he got in a fight with a referee in snooker. That would be like getting in a physical altercation with a dealer in Texas Hold'em, right? Can you imagine even the jerkiest bad boy poker players? And granted, that's, that's as funny as a bad boy tennis player. Let's be honest. Can you imagine one of them getting a physical altercation with a poker dealer in a tournament? That's what this guy did. Apparently, the amount that he drank, the amount that he smoked, and I think there was a a drug addiction there, was just insane. He may have spent all 4 million pounds that he earned, which I think adjusted for inflation and adjusted for currency, for those of you in the US, that's a lot of money in today's money. He spent it all on alcohol and drugs, or either alcohol and tobacco, if I'm mistaken there. In his second marriage, that ended up ending because he beat his then wife with a hairdryer. Now, granted, if it's a Conair plastic hairdryer from the 1980s, I suppose that's probably better than if he had used a more deadly instrument, thank God. I believe his then wife was okay, probably after recovering from the emotional and psychological trauma of the whole ordeal. Higgins spent all his money on these things. And despite being the people's champion, was perhaps reviled in in other circles. Some players, despite Higgins' success and his prodigious talent, characterized him later as, quote-unquote, not a great player. And he arguably fulfilled his potential only intermittently, those are words directly from Wikipedia, during a slight peak during that time. And granted, this is not the NFL. This is not the NBA. This is not even tennis where you have a very short lifespan of your ability to compete. 
This is snooker. You could compete for 40 years if you were good because it's not that physically demanding. The name Hurricane as a nickname is pretty awesome. And I come from some nickname heavy cultures like Wall Street, like the SEAL teams and a family of seven kids. Also, I'm from Florida. Hurricanes are a fact of life, kind of a something that Floridians take pride in, weirdly. My brother also went to the University of Miami for undergrad. And so the mascot there is the Hurricanes, for those of you who don't follow sports or collegiate athletics. Hurricane Higgins was known for his really fast play. And so despite the altercations, I think the name Hurricane came earlier than probably he was able to actually beat anybody up. And he would play very fast. I guess snooker is a very plotting sport. I think when Higgins won his first championship, he was living in housing that was basically decrepit and on the border of demolishment. Demolition, probably a better word there. And when he died, he was also living in similarly decrepit conditions. He at one point had been worth over 4 million pounds. At the end of his life, he was bankrupt and was surviving on a disability allowance from the government of 200 pounds. He was found dead. And although he had smoked 80 cigarettes a day and as a result had developed esophageal cancer, although his daughter claimed at the time of his death, he was free and clear of that cancer. He had an insane amount of other conditions, malnutrition. His weight had dropped to less than 110 pounds for a reasonably tall man, if my, all my math there and the conversions is correct. Malnutrition, pneumonia, tooth decay, and some other conditions as well. And presumably did not have a lot of friends, did not have a romantic partner at the end. His funeral service was highly attended, especially by other snooker greats. Not that you or I would ever recognize any of these other snooker greats necessarily, but fans and, and perhaps folks in the UK did. But then again, is the measure of your life really the number and quality of people who attend your funeral. If getting that sort of recognition and getting those attendees at your funeral requires you to be a bad boy or a bad girl, is that really worth it? I can't claim all the answers in terms of whether it makes sense to be a bad boy and in terms of whether maybe our societal, our species advancement requires people to push the bounds in interesting ways to reveal their psychoses and their perhaps emotional trauma and have that manifest in ways that somehow help us all. Maybe that's key to our species success. But, but I don't know about you, but there's plenty of bad boys in the annals of sports and rock and roll who ended up really living terrible lives. 
and dying alone, dying sad about their relationships with their children and what they had done to other people. Hurricane is a badass nickname. But if all of that's the cost, you can have it. like the warrior poet there's more great content on instagram follow shri the warrior poet on instagram that's s-r-i the warrior poet you can also get to know me on a personal level by following shri actually on instagram as well the warrior poet is produced by laddie with special contributions by spoonman and me shri No, 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 no. Kevin, me na do it. Spita.